sharing with us this morning about life groups. Is this on? You guys hear me? Joe, can you hear? No? All right. Um, well, good morning. I'll give my good morning. It's, glad to, it's good to be here. Uh, this is the Sunday after Easter, if you can't tell. Uh, the, the pews aren't as full, and um, people don't look as good. You know, they're not as dressed up as well as they were last Sunday. Um, last Sunday was our seasonal high, if you want to say, and uh, there was more excitement, and uh, you know, now you have the, the backup preacher up here, and there's, there's less decor, and you know, maybe there's less confidence this morning. Uh, maybe there is a little bit, maybe you're disappointed because lunch isn't going to be as good today as it was last week. Um, and so there's all those things going on this morning, but uh, Jesus is still alive, amen? And uh, today is not, is not a different day than, than last Sunday. The reason we gather together here is for the same purpose that we did then, uh, to glorify God, to praise Him as our Savior, our Lord, our King. He is Jesus, the Son of God, and that's who we are here to worship today. So let's pray as we begin this time of looking into Scripture and thinking about His Word. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here in your name. Um, We've already prayed to you a bunch, Lord, but we cannot do that enough. Uh, We can't come before you and humble ourselves and bow before you enough, Lord, because you are everything. You are um, the world. You are the light. You are the truth. And we want to know you even better today than we did before we came in here. So, Lord, would you just help us to understand your word? Uh, Would you help us to take the truth this morning that you've been pouring into my life uh, lately and that it would just um, bless those that are hearing today, Lord, that we would hear from you and to to know the rest that comes in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you are, are... if you like to take notes, um, you have a full page because I didn't give you an outline. So you can do your own note-taking. You can do all of that. But you'll see that we're talking about gospel rest. And you might think that when someone talks about rest in the church, they're think, you first think is they're going to talk about Sabbath rest or um, that you cannot, absolutely cannot work on Sunday. How many of you grew up hearing that? That you cannot work on Sunday, that Sunday was the day that you had to do nothing but just rest and um, which for good reason there is that because it's 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 like baptism or communion uh, a day during the week where you rest from your work is scriptural it says that God rested from his work and so we rest from our work and taking a day during the week to do that is to help us remember is to remind us is to be a symbol of what's already um, of, of what God has done or his resting But when I say the phrase gospel rest, and we'll get into this in just a minute, I'm speaking more specifically of the rest that comes through Jesus Christ, spiritual rest. And you might be thinking we don't need that this morning, but I hope that as we as we uh, as we just talk with each other this morning, you'll see that there is there's a desperate need for us in the church today just to continually rest. Let me recap for you if you weren't here or maybe you were at a different church, but the last couple weeks um, during our corporate gatherings, we've had a time of, uh, that is time filled with sadness. Most of it was filled with joy and hope, but as is customary during Holy Week, 
there was an intentional focus or maybe a refocus on the passion events that we see in Scripture. The surrounding around, starting with Jesus' coming into Jerusalem, um, the triumphal entry, and we had students or kids up here waving palm branches. We had baptisms on that Sunday, and we just got to remember that the, that the people cried out, Hosanna. They cried out, Lord, save us. And they wanted that salvation from, from not uh, to save us from our own selves, from death and hell, but they wanted to be saved from the, the tyranny and the oppression of the Roman government. But we saw that, and then we we observed and we remembered the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples when he washed their feet and, uh, and they came to say, I came to serve you, not to be served. And we remembered that. And, and we also remembered his agony and, and his prayer in the garden. Jesus sweat drops of blood because he was so concerned or so stressed with the fact of the cup that he was about to bear, the full weight of of God's wrath being on his shoulders, and so it caused him to pray all night until he was captured, until um, one of his own, uh, his disciple Judas, came, and he knew this was going to happen, yet what a, what a smack in the face when, when one of your own comes and, and, and betrays you. And Jesus was betrayed by those um, that he had poured into for the last three years, and, and uh, then he was tortured and beaten, and it wasn't it wasn't a pretty picture. You know, all night he was tortured and beaten and, and mocked. And he was, he was put on trial and they couldn't really find out anything. So he was passed around from leader to leader. And they just kept pressing on the issue, pressing on the issue. And then we remembered on Friday night his horrific, bloody death. And uh, it wasn't pretty. It was a marred body that, was just, um, that just took its toll. And it was an atoning sacrifice for our sin but then the story doesn't stop there does it and then the next sunday we came together last sunday and it reached its pinnacle christ's victory over the grave he defeated death he raised from the dead he is alive and we began to say to one another he is risen he is risen and now that wasn't good enough this isn't easter i know but we can still say it okay he is risen yeah he has and so we said that to one another, and I found, this, I found this quote that kind of summed up, I think, Jay's sermon last week. It says, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. It's all about the fact that Jesus came, he died, and that he rose from the grave. And so we celebrated that last week. And a lot of times in the church, and maybe if you're like me, you think, okay, Easter's over, now what? I mean, what do we go? What do we have to celebrate now? What do we look forward to now? And here, the scripture doesn't stop there. In Hebrews, you can go ahead and turn to Book of Hebrews because we're going to spend uh, a little bit of time in there this morning. Turn to Hebrews chapter twelve, verse two. It says this: that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of um, at the right hand of the throne of God. He is seated at the right hand of God. Have you ever wondered why the Bible tells us about Jesus' position or his posture? Why does it tell us that he's sitting down and that he's, and, and, and makes an emphasis on that fact and not that he's standing up or not that he is 
moving around or that he's working and toiling. I know we read the scriptures and it says that he's out there, uh, that he's preparing for us a place, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I think that's very significant, and I don't want us to miss that this morning, that, that he is sitting down. Let me ask you guys a question. When you have a long day at the office or in the field or at school or at home with the kids, what do you want to do when you're done with that? You want to rest. You want to sit down and you want to put up your feet and you want to rest, or you want to go lay in your bed and just not be bothered. You want to relax. You want to rest. And so in that fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God is very significant because it means that like we like to do, we like to rest when we finished our work. Jesus, too, has finished his work. He has completed the task that he was called to do. Uh, the mission of seeking and saving the lost, bearing the weight of sin on his shoulders, he has finished that and he is done with it and he's resting. All the suffering, all the agony, bearing the full weight of God's wrath, overcoming the sting of death and the curse, he made possible a way to be reconciled to our Creator and now it is finished. Nothing else needs to happen and that is all of God's grace. It's nothing that we deserve. It's nothing that we earned. So in light of God's grace, in light of His grace towards you, towards me, in the atoning work of Christ, and, and if you don't know that phrase or you haven't heard that, the atoning work of Christ, we would, um, we would submit, and Scripture teaches that, that Christ is, a, is our substitutionary atonement, meaning He is our substitute. He took our place and he atoned for our sins. And atonement, the best illustration that I can give for atonement is, is found in Scripture. And it's through the story of Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark, you guys know that story. It's not just this miracle of a floating boat with... A floating boat? All boats float, okay? Um, but this ark with, with animals on it and its pretty picture and all this stuff. No, it was, it was this picture of wrath and a picture of judgment. And it said that the ark was built out of gopher's wood. And out of gopher's wood, what they put on the outside of the ark? They put a pitch on the outside of the ark. And that word pitch is the, kind of the same word for atonement. It means a covering. So whoever found themselves inside the ark, covered by that pitch, covered by that atonement, is saved from the wrath of God. And Jesus, therefore, is our atonement. Those of us that trust and believe Him, those of us that are in Him, are covered from the wrath of God. We are covered with His righteousness. And so this beautiful picture of, of atonement there. And so it's the work, the atoning work is the work Christ did in His life and His death to earn for us salvation. The work that He did in His life and His death. Not just His death. Uh, I was reading something recently, and I said, if it would have been just Jesus' death, why couldn't he have just been born and as a baby die for our atonement? He had to live a perfect life. He had to do what Adam couldn't do, what you and I couldn't do. He lived a full life of obedience, was tempted in every way that we're tempted, and yet he didn't give in to it. He was obedient to the Father. And so in his obedience, through his life, and through his death, his sacrificial death, he earned salvation for us. And so the question on this side of Easter 
do you think that Jesus' sufferings were enough to pay for all your sins? Do you think when he died on the cross that his perfect life and his death, do you think that was sufficient for all the sins that we have? Was it sufficient for the sins you're struggling with right now? Was it sufficient for the past sins that you, that you continually remember over and over? And I think as we, um, we're going to look a little bit at the book of Hebrews, this isn't going to be an expository type sermon, but it is text driven. It's not the same that we normally do. We, we believe that the best way to, to study Scripture and to be fed is, is going through verse by verse, passage by passage through Scripture. But today, I just want to bring the concept of rest together as we look at Hebrews, pointing out two things specifically, that there is a central argument being made in the book of Hebrews. This is a letter, and, and also that it was tailor-made for a specific group of people. So there's a, there's, a, there's a sustained argument through the book, and there's also a people in mind. It wasn't just written uh, in general. It has a specific people in mind when the author wrote this. Now, the letter to Hebrews, you, uh, if you've ever studied it, ladies studied that, right, not too long ago, Mandy? Um, if you've ever studied the book of he- Hebrews, you know it's obviously full of theology. There's, um, so that's not the problem in seeing that but it's, maybe it is a little bit of a problem to see how those connect all together into one sustained argument. Some of the theology you see in the book of Hebrews is the sonship of Christ, the kingship, his priestly work, not to mention the warning passages and the concept of faith that we see in Hebrews or the concept of rest that we see in Hebrews. But how do these all relate to this sustained argument that runs from start to finish? And Barnabas Lindars, professor and theologian, writes this. He says, this argument, this letter, is not just a theological treatise, but an urgent address to original readers who are on the brink of taking action, which their leaders regard as nothing short of apostasy or falling away from God. The central argument of the letter is a compelling case for the complete an abiding efficiency of Jesus' death as an atoning sacrifice. The main thing that he wants his readers to know throughout the, all the theology that you see in there is that the atoning sacrifice of Christ is complete and it's abiding. It doesn't stop. And, and you're, you might be able to see that as you read that, but it, for me it made even more sense um, when I understood who the original recipients were. The letter is being written to, um, as most theologians and most scholars will say, um, that one of the views is, and the vast majority I would say that, is Jewish Christians. It was written to Jewish Christians. However, um, I, I would take it even a step further, and I'm being persuaded by my professor, who's made compelling arguments for this, that it is written to not just Jewish Christians, but former priests. Those who have, um, which makes sense if you read through Hebrews and you see all the language that, that would, make a, would be appealing to a priest when it talks about the Day of Atonement and the, how the sacrifices were done. And so in that, in Acts 6-7, record, Luke records that in Jerusalem the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And, and, and a great many of the priest became obedient to the faith. History would tell us that 
20, there's, there were some 20,000 priests. And, around, and, and about 7,200 priests were attached to t- the temple in Jerusalem. And then we remember in Acts 8, where you see the, the death of Stephen, his persecution. And maybe some, during that time, some of these converted Jewish priests were, um, were forced out of Jerusalem. And they're now somewhere else. Um, there's some say that it, it was different places, but I would like to say that it was in Syrian Antioch, which um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense or doesn't mean a whole lot. So you're asking yourself this question. I know I can see it on your face. Why are you telling us this? What does this have to do with the point of the sermon? I wish you would have just given me an outline so that I can know where you're going with this. But you're asking, why are you telling us this? What does this mean for us today? When you see that, that the letter is written to a people, think about the, the Jewish priests. What were they all about? Sacrifices, right? In the Old Testament time, they were ministering people, and they were, and they were, and they were doing sacrifices over and over and over again every year. And so in Hebrews, we read in chapters 9 and 10, it talks about that there, there needs to be only one sacrifice once for all. Jesus died. It was never meant that the blood of bulls and goats were to ever take away the sin. But year after year, uh, on the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would spill the blood of this goat or lamb, and it would atone for the past sins of the last year. And so, and now in this present day, this situation where you have these, these Jewish priests, these Christians believing that that they're on the brink of taking action because they feel like that the assurance that they had in the death of Jesus Christ, what do they do about their past? I mean, the death of Jesus on the cross paid for their past sins, but what about their, their current sins and their future sins? Because you know, just as well as I do, when you trust and believe in Jesus Christ, I was nine years old and I couldn't really tell a big difference in my life, but when you trust and believe in Jesus Christ, you know that that you continue to struggle with sin. And so you think, oh, maybe the death of Jesus paid for my past sins. So all the sins that I've committed up until this point and when I trusted in Jesus, those were atoned for. But what gives me covering? What, what, what is the security in my current sins? Or what about my future sins? And so you can see the problem maybe that these Jewish priests, these former Jewish priests had. They like, Okay, we, we know it paid for the, fa- the past, but what about, what about our current and our present sins? What, what will atone for those? And so they were on the brink of going back into Judaism. They wanted to take up action. They weren't confident in the fact. And so the author is over and over again throughout the letter to the Hebrews, which is a, ser- which is a sermon as well. He says, be confident. Hold confidence your confession. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He's giving them this warning. Chapter 3 um, verse 7 through 4 verse 11 is this, is this the, where we mainly get this concept of rest, gospel rest. And gospel rest is, not, is, is found, and it gives a little bit about Sabbath rest. It talks about that in there. But what he's doing in this passage is he's comparing his current readers, these Jewish priests, and their disbelief 
that the, that the, that the atoning sacrifice, the atoning work of God through Jesus Christ was enough for them. He's, he's, he's warning them and saying, don't be like the people in Moses' day, the generation before you. Those who, um, who, when the spies were sent into Canaan, and only ten of them came back and gave negative reports, and two of them came back and gave positive report. Moses and the people didn't believe that they could take this land. And it was disbelief that God says. And in this passage, it says that's, what, that's how they failed to enter God's rest. There was no peace for them. They continued to work and to toil because they couldn't rest in that. And, and, and this idea of rest that we see in this passage, yes, it's a future rest, but it's also a right now rest. It's a already but not yet concept that we see in Scripture. You see that over and over. We've already obtained it, but yet we're going to see it in its fullest in the days to come. And so we have this this warning, this address, and it says, Do not harden your hearts. And then look at chapter 4, verse 3. It says, For whoever, sorry, for we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. And so we see that what is the... What is, the, what is contingent upon resting in the gospel? Belief. It's trust. It's faith in what God has done. It's being confident and holding that to the end. And now Satan would love nothing more than for us just to, to wane in our confidence. That doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation. Scripture is clear that once saved, that you are tightly in God's uh, possession. You are his own. But in that, you're, you maybe are not growing. You're, you're in this life of, of continually wondering, what do I need to do now? I see out here as I, as I look into the audience and, and those of you that are here, there's a lot of hard workers in here. People who toil all day long with their work. And yet, in the church too, we have a lot of people like me who trusted and believed in Jesus when they were young, when they were little, and then the rest of their time in their Christian walk They've tried to earn salvation by doing things. What can I do to be good enough in your sight, God? What can I do in order to be saved? Jesus is not standing. He is seated at the right hand of God. The work is done. There's nothing else that you need to do. Matter of fact, there's nothing you can do. Some of you might have heard this illustration before, but of a master carpenter, and I've shared this with the youth, and some of you uh, men probably saw this in the catechism um, if you're going to the morning Bible studies, but a master carpenter is building a cabinet, and he's, he's sanding it, he's sanding it, and he's got this young apprentice who's with him, and, and the apprentice says, can I do some of that? Can I put a little bit of work into that, a little bit of elbow grease? And he's like, no, 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 um, I'll do it. And he finishes the work, and the apprentice says, I didn't do anything. And he says, I know, but it's perfect right now. And, and the young apprentice said, but I have, to, I have to add some work to it. I have to put my mark on there to say that I did something. And he said, if you do that, if you add to this finished work, then it will no longer be perfect. It will no longer be good. And therefore, whatever we add to the work of Christ, we're actually subtracting from the gospel. It no longer becomes uh, by grace alone through faith. It becomes by grace alone through faith, plus whatever, you, whatever else you can do, plus how often I attend church, or how often I read my Bible, 
or how well I love my family or whatever it might be. We try to make those things are the things that put our little piece of sandpaper on there and, and make it be something that, that it's not. And Jesus has finished that work for us. And, and it's so hard because just like these Jewish Christians today, you and I, we might have doubts and fears about sometimes that the work was good enough for us because in light of our current situation and the struggles we have, we're like, is it really, is it really working? Did Jesus really do enough for us? And we struggle with that confidence just as these early readers of this letter did. And it's tiresome, isn't it? I mean, to never be at rest, to always feel like you need to do something to prove your worth to God. I mean, it, it, it's this life of toil and this life of running around. And when is it ever enough? When can you ever do enough to please God? And so if you, if you can't find rest in the gospel, if you can't understand that this side of Easter, Jesus has died, he's risen, and he's seated, and the work is done, then the rest of our lives are going to be this life of struggle and work, trying to prove ourselves to God. And, and if you're like me, you maybe pull out this resume that says, look at all the good Christian stuff I did. I went to a Christian high school. I went into the ministry, which uh, I was confessing to somebody the other day. God has changed my heart in this. But one of the real reasons why I went into seminary is because I felt like it would make me a stronger believer. It would make me a, a bigger, a better Christian that, oh, if I can go there, you know, uh, it's this way for me, discipline. I would always, I would do well at running three miles in high school before basketball when someone dropped me off and said, you better get back here. But if you just say, go run three miles on your own, it's a lot harder to do, okay? And so I was thinking, well, if I go to seminary, somebody's going to be making me study Scripture. That's going to be a good thing. And God will be pleased in that. And that's not the case. He's only pleased in the fact that Jesus has, has done the work. That's why the Scripture talks about Jesus being a pleasing aroma, or the sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to God. And it wasn't that God likes the smell of flesh, but he's thinking of his son, Jesus, and the sacrifice that he would have. So this concept of rest becomes rich and deep as we understand these truths that are maybe laid out in, in a way through the, the book of Hebrews. Let me give you another verse here. In verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, it says this, For whoever has rested... For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Jesus finished the work. It's, it's referencing back to in the beginning, God created the world and he said it was good and he rested. And he stopped working. So did Jesus. He stopped working. And we that have believed in Jesus Christ have entered that rest. That's, that's the way you enter his rest. And we can stop all of our work. You can stop your toil. Um, easier said than done. But Satan, again, would want to lie and to trick us to thinking that Jesus' work only paid for the past things. Now we have to do the rest. You meet God halfway. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus all the way. Jesus plus nothing else equals salvation. So how can we apply this to our lives today? There's an invitation in Scripture, a beautiful invitation, which we all need to hear. And so I'm going to read this to you 
And I want to, I want you to really feel like this is an invitation. This is going to be one of those verses that you, um, that you probably see on Christian mugs or t-shirts. And so maybe it's overlooked a lot, but this is a serious call and an invitation for this exact same thing to have rest. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When he invites you to have rest in him, do you trust that? Can you be sure of that? Will you now and will you always rely on him for your complete salvation? Can you have confidence in that this morning? If you're lacking confidence this morning and you're, and you're thinking about, and, and I was talking with somebody after the first service, and sometimes it's unintentional. You're probably not going to go home and think, man, I need to do something for God today. I need to, to earn his favor. But you might be going home and unintentionally thinking, man, I'm not good enough. I'm, not, I'm never going to get this thing down. I need to do more for you, Lord. And not just... Uh, not the whole concept faith without works is dead because it's true, but the earning part of it, earning some kind of favor with God. And so if that's you today, I want, I want you just to rest. Find rest in believing that the work is finished, that it's over, that you can stop doing things for God. Trust in that fact. And then for those of us that are still trusting, and, and we're all going to struggle with this at some time, uh, or we're resting, you feel like you're resting now, you haven't been trying to work for any good favor with God, how do we take, take heart of this message and do something with it? How do we live it out? And what I want to say to that is, remain steadfast and confident. Remember, take the truth that Jesus finished the work, that you are completely loved and forgiven. Know that Christ, know that in Christ there is nothing absolutely nothing that you can do to earn his his favor there was nothing that you could do that would ever make god love you any less and there's nothing that you can do that would ever make god love you more he loves you completely right now the work is finished it's done and i want you to take that truth and i want you to focus on it over and over day by day take that and as john McCar- as john piper says preach it to yourself don't wait until Sunday morning to, to have a pastor come up and preach to you. Rest. Take that invitation, and when your heart is doubting, when your mind is doubting, preach it to yourself over and over. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your, into your life. Take this message that, and, and just focus on the fact that Jesus is sitting down and preach that to yourself until, until your mind believes it. And your heart starts to soar. And you will find rest that only comes through Jesus Christ. You can't earn his favor. Jesus did that for us. Put your hope and trust in him. Don't be like the, reader, the, the recipients of this letter who are being warned that disbelief, that they're waning in their confidence. Be assured today. Assure one another. Preach this to one another as we as we leave this place. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today that you would uh, soften our hearts. Would you help us to understand 
God, would you give us more confidence and more hope in the work that you've completed in your son, that it's not anything of our, that we can do, anything that we can boast about, but it's all of you, it's all of grace, that we can, that we can have a relationship with you, that we can be near you. God, you know our hearts, Lord, you know my heart, and my tendency is to, is to add something to your work. God, if I could just do a little bit more. And I grow tired and I grow weary because I, I feel like I can never do enough. God, would you assure me today, would you assure us today that it's not by our efforts that save us, but it's by the work that Christ has done. Lord, if there's, if there's people here this morning that are really struggling with resting and they feel like they're just working endlessly, tirelessly, to prove themselves to be a good Christian, to be faithful, that they would stop, that they would just trust in you and be confident, Jesus, that, that you lived the perfect life. You died the perfect death in order that we would be right with God. Would you help us just to trust in that? If there's anyone here that's never trusted in you, believed in you, Lord, draw them to yourself, that they would put their hope in Jesus alone. We pray in his name. Amen.